sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You lose half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. We put to rest the rumor and innuendo about your favorite bands and songs. We do the research and report back to you. My name is Brian. Murdoch is out this week, but you can always get involved in the show when you go to wearethestoryguys.com or send us an email to wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Now, I want to talk directly to the guitar players who are listening. Now, I don't want you to tune out if you're not a guitar player, but this is a very special guitar player thing. Do you remember the guitar that captured your imagination? The guitar that made you want to play guitar. Now, my dad had an acoustic guitar, and that was all right. He let me wail on it as much as you can wail on an acoustic guitar. I scratched it up. He was fairly gracious about that. Uh, It was the first time I really saw disappointment in his face, and I was like, oh, I messed this thing up. But he tried to mask it. He was cool about it. And that guitar still sits in my house with those battle scars on it. Um, It's a Yamaha FG300 for gearheads out there. It's a nice guitar. He claims he bought it in a pawn shop in the 70s, I think, Um, but it's had a good life with us. Now, I actually think the guitar that really made me want one, though, was not that guitar. I think it was this guitar. One of two, actually. There was a guitar owned by my older cousin, Steven. I want to say it was an Epiphone. It was orange, and I could turn it up and mess with the pedals and his amp in his parents' basement, and it was awesome. Wrote some some teenage songs on that guitar that my teenage band played. Um, And then there was one that was owned by this girl I knew in middle school. Her name was Ashley. And I remember Ashley being pretty and slightly intimidating and mysterious, which is how I like my women. And it was all made the more cool by the fact that she owned this sweet guitar. Now, I don't remember what kind of guitar it was. I just remember it looked cool. And the thing you have to understand about this particular moment in my history is uh, age and location. So this was mid-90s, and Joan Osborne had a song on the radio. Now, you have to remember that Joan Osborne is from Louisville, Kentucky. So I think this may have been an even bigger deal in Louisville, Kentucky in my youth than it was for the rest of the country. But that song, undeniably a giant hit. And Ashley could, like, sort of sing, and she definitely had that guitar, and I think we were briefly in a band together. And I just remember thinking, it didn't get cooler then this girl that I knew from youth group, but who also was singing this song that was a little questionable and made people uncomfortable because it referred to God as a female. <laughs> These were the things we were concerned about in the nineties. Uh, what am I, who am I kidding? We're still concerned about those things. Uh, so yeah, that, that guitar really made me think I, I want to be a guy who plays guitar. I want to be a rock star. That and the fact that I was terrible at sports probably all uh, <laughs> all led up to me learning to play guitar in the back of a Christian bookstore with group lessons by a guy named Paul uh, who would show me basic chords and get me on my way. And then I would use a fake book to learn to very much fake my way as a guitarist for the rest of my life. Um, I often say what I lack in skill 
I make up for in enthusiasm. Okay, so Brian, why are you talking about guitars that made you fall in love with guitars? I bring this up because so many rock and roll stories start with an encounter like this, right? Sometimes it's your dad's guitar. Maybe it's the hot girl at youth group. Sometimes it's your older brother. And that's what happened with the Shanker brothers, Rudolph and Michael. So for his birthday, Rudolph, the older brother, gets a Gibson Flying V, which let me just say, amazing gift to give a kid. That is not what I got. So my grandmother finally bought me an electric guitar, gave my dad 150 bucks, said, buy Brian an electric guitar because the Yamaha FG300 was not cutting it in my aspirations of cool. And so I got this Fender Squire, which looks sort of cool, especially to a kid. It's not a flying V. Flying Vs, that's a statement. You show up at junior high with a flying V, people are going to pay attention. Uh, So Michael, the younger brother, gets infatuated with his older brother's guitar. Again, very common story. He's seven years younger than Rudy, but that doesn't stop him from learning everything he can. And when Michael is 10 and Rudy is 17, Rudy starts a band. And he tries different lineups, but he figures out pretty quickly that it might make some sense to bring in the guitar-obsessed kid that lives in his own house. So, Rudolph and Michael end up in a band together, and they get a singer named Klaus, and suddenly, you have the Scorpions. Now, if you're getting excited because you think this is a story about the Scorpions, I hate to disappoint you, it's not. But do you know who their first tour was with? Their first tour was with this band, who was up and coming at the time in the early 70s, called UF. Oh, and since I've brought up UFO, this is a great opportunity to talk about a phenomenon called space rock. Now, I consider myself well-read and well-informed on rock music, rock history, genres, trends, all of that, but I'll be damned if I ever heard of space rock before researching this episode. I think I might have referred to a band as spacey, or maybe even like sci-fi-ish, but there is an actual certifiable subgenre called space rock. So, Murdoch and I are both too young to remember what the space race was like. Maybe, maybe some of you lived through it and can kind of remember this. But it's a little hard for me to understand this idea of being obsessed with your country or people in the world setting foot on the moon, right? Or, or taking a rocket into space. But this idea of man going to the moon blew minds, right? And it got to be pretty consuming as a mindset. And it had all these nationalistic implications, right? My country is so badass, Earth can't even contain us, right? So as this is developing as a political and civic phenomenon, it only makes sense that it's going to bleed into the culture and the music. So first, it bleeds in as subject matter. But then musicians figured out that like bleeps and blips coming out of the right songs uh, sounded really cool and they could drop those effects in. And so you started to have this spacey kind of rock. Now, an early forerunner of this, the kickoff to space rock by the estimation of many is this British producer, this dude named Joe Meek, who made this concept album in 1959 called I Hear a New World.
That's the title track. And I mean, I guess it's sort of spacey. It also sort of sounds like it would play at the end of an episode of Gunsmoke. But hey, the guy was trying stuff. He makes this concept record and it, you know, sort of catches on to a certain extent. But Space Rock eventually develops into other things. It doesn't stay that literal. Um, It becomes more about a vibe. And by the 90s, several decades in, it sort of turns into what we now call like shoegaze. But UFO starts at the end of the 60s. And at first, they're sort of interested in cashing in on this idea of space rock. Their second record featured a 26-minute title track and a 19-minute long song called Starstorm that was subtitled. And the subtitle of that song was One Hour Space Rock. But they realized fairly quickly this was sort of gimmicky and it was a little limiting. And so they started to explore what it would be like to just be a hard rock band. Now, interestingly, the one thing not inspired by Space Rock is their name, as much as it sounds like it would be. Uh, Lead singer Phil Mogg, guitarist Mick Bolton, bassist Pete Way, and drummer Andy Parker started the band in 1968, and they called themselves Hocus Pocus at first. But they were discovered at this club in London called UFO, and so they changed their name to honor that discovery. Now, the first two records don't do much for them. Mick Bolton, the guitar player, he leaves the band, and now they're heading out on this tour, and they don't have a permanent guitarist. They're trying out a couple of guys. They get out on the road, and they see this band they've brought with them. This band, the Scorpions. And, like is happening kind of everywhere they play, they themselves get a little infatuated with this young kid who is ripping away on the guitar. And that, of course, is the kid who sort of stole his older brother's flying V... When he was 11, Michael Schenker. I've never heard of this before, but UFO, during this tour, goes to the Scorps and asks if they can have Michael. Can little brother switch teams? Can he play for the headliner? (laughs) Only problem, Michael Schenker doesn't speak English. Quick side note, this jump from the Scorpions to UFO by Michael actually breaks up the Scorpions. They finish the tour with a friend on guitar. They offer that friend the gig, and that friend says no, because he has this other band that is his main thing called Don Road, D-A-W-N Road, and he wants to keep playing with them. So the scores break up, but Rudy Shanker ends up showing up at Don Road rehearsals and becomes their guitar player, and then they convince him. They're like, hey, we we actually need a new singer. Why don't you call that Klaus guy to come and sing? And so this band ends up going to record And when they go to record and put stuff out, they decide that it only makes sense that the name with a little bit more invested in it is the Scorpions. Because Scorpions had already put something out and had a little bit of a following. So even though the band is really Don Road with two guys from the Scorpions who joined it, they now become the Scorpions, the second incarnation. Let's stay focused on Michael. The kid's 18 years old. And he's already made a name for himself as a guitarist. And he's just nabbed himself a spot in an established rock band who's starting to get some buzz. And he jumps in with both feet. Not only is he playing, UFO gets a major label debut on Chrysalis Records and he ends up writing most of that album. Now, there's no doubt he's talented. But if you've listened to enough episodes of this show, you know the talented guys are often a handful. 
If you're bored at work, Google Michael Shanker walks off stage. And you'll be surprised at the number of hits that you get. A nice selection of stories from throughout several decades of Shanker's career. Uh, him just being a jerk. Basically, he immediately becomes legendary for being very hard to work with. His first stint with UFO ends by 1978. He starts a project of his own called the Micro- Michael Shanker Group. And it has consistent personnel issues because people can't get along with them. But... He gets asked to be in, I mean, this is hyperbole, but it feels like every important rock band. And he he ends up turning down most all of the offers for one reason or another. Now, of course, there are conflicting stories. He auditioned for Joe Perry's spot in Aerosmith in 1979 when Perry left. One version of that story is that he stormed out of the studio because the engineer made a Nazi joke. But there's also a story that he came in and this is actually the one I found more when researching this. He came in to the studio and just like told the band he was taking over. And then to drive the point home, took his jacket off and asked one of the band members to like put his jacket up for him. He also auditioned for Randy Rhodes' spot with Ozzy after the plane crash. If you don't know about the Randy Rhodes plane crash, look in our library. You're going to find an episode about it. We'll get you up to speed. After that happens, he tells Ozzy, Sure, but I'm going to need a private jet. And Ozzy does not take that deal. These stories are outlandish, and there's a bunch of them. He claims he auditioned for Thin Lizzy. There's, and I don't know how certifiable this is, but at least he himself says that he was asked to audition for the Stones. And he definitely did. This is undisputed. He did join Rat for a brief period of time. And he was asked to join a version of Deep Purple at one point. So this is a guy, very singular, but like a lot of his contemporaries, has his own battles with drugs and alcohol. But all of this, I'm telling you, we skipped way ahead, and it's really just for context, because I want you to understand the core of who Michael Schenker is from the very beginning by looking at who he becomes. This is sort of him his whole career. He is on tour now. He is playing in a lot of small clubs in small towns throughout the country. I saw that at some time this summer, he's playing in Hobart, Indiana. I have a friend from Hobart, Indiana. And um, sort of by Gary, Indiana. Like, kind of by Chicago. But uh, I don't think they get a lot of guitar gods stopping in their town. So that's sort of what Michael Shanker is doing now. So we've skipped to the end. Because what I really want to do is go back to the beginning and tell you a story about Michael Shanker in those early UFO days when he goes to play in a club outside L.A. in 1976. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you today by Athletic Greens and their product, AG1. If the pandemic taught me anything, it's that my immune system needs to be in tip-top shape, and AG1 helps me get there. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, they're all there, and bonus, it does not taste bad, which is really good. Uh, It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, any of that stuff, contains less than one gram of sugar and helps better sleep quality and mental clarity and alertness. Really good when you're doing a lot of rock and roll research. It's important to me, right? Uh, So listen, it's time for you to reclaim your health. 
Arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. Just one scoop, cup of water every day. That's it. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Go check it out and just make sure you put athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. The date of the show we're going to talk about, it's May 9th, 1976. But this was a very important night for another set of guys. Four guys in a band in Pasadena, California, who up to this point were a cover band. They've got a virtuoso guitar player, and they've got a front man with amazing stage presence. But these dudes were having trouble getting booked at anything other than the seediest parts of the Sunset Strip. And while they had original music, they felt really insecure because they'd spent several years honing their cover craft. They would show up and they were a party band. They'd play in backyards and they'd play the new songs on the radio and everybody would be shocked because they were playing stuff that had just come out because they really knew how to create a vibe. But they didn't know how to inject their own tunes into that vibe. They didn't know it yet. But after months of pushing this, this, this flamboyant front band I'm talking about, he's been pushing his band for months to start to lean into the original stuff. He can see it. He says, if we're going to make it, we can't be a cover band. We have to be bold. We have to step out. We have to play just our stuff. So, David Lee Roth got the rest of Van Halen to commit that on May 9th, 1976, at the Golden West Ballroom outside LA, in in Nowak, they were going to play a set of their original tunes for the first time. UFO's No Heavy Petting album dropped May 7th. This show was on May 9th. Now, to get ready for this drop, they had been doing a residency in L.A. to prepare. This note I'm going to read here from the Greg Renoff book Van Halen Rising, featured heavily on our David Lee Roth versus Gene Simmons episode. Amazing book, and this story is there. Okay, when not on stage, UFO had laid siege during this time, right before their album came out, to Hollywood Sunset Marquee Hotel. They sat wasted by the pool in their mirrored sunglasses, soaking up the Southern California sun and enjoyed all of the decadent activities in that that the City of Angels had to offer. And to end their L.A. campaign, they signed a $5,000 contract with some small-time promoter to play in some place called Norwalk with some local band they had never heard of before and presumably would never hear from again. But across the city of Pasadena, Roth keeps his eye on the prize. But they keep hearing about Michael Schenker. They keep hearing about his reputation as a as Hard Rock's newest and youngest guitar god. Roth starts pushing the Van Halen brothers into this gig by hyping it up to be like a boxing match. There's several stories in the Renoff book about the bravado with which Roth treats this and then by association, the rest of the band treats encounters or questions about this gig. They turn it into war. They start to say, we're going to win or Eddie's going to destroy Michael. It's, you know, they're basically psyching themselves up. So the day of the show arrives, Van Halen is at the Golden West Ballroom for sound check. UFO shows up. Keep in mind, you heard that description. They have been on a bender. They have been laying on a pool in mirrored sunglasses, drinking. 
And immediately, they walk into this sound check, and they are concerned. They are concerned about the band that is going to play before they play that night. So here's what they try to do. UFO sends a couple roadies out to buy Van Halen a gift. They come back with a couple jugs full of alcohol to gift to Van Halen, hoping they can get them liquored up so they won't be as sharp as they seem in soundcheck. Now, if you've listened to our episode about David Lee Roth and Gene Simmons, it's important to know that this story I'm telling now actually takes place directly before all that. So if you haven't, go back and listen to that next, and you'll be right in order. Otherwise, this serves as a bit of a prequel. And I say that because Lita Ford and Jackie Fox come to this show as UFO fans. Now, you know if you have listened to that episode that Jackie Fox and Lita Ford eventually lead Gene Simmons to Van Halen. So what happens at this concert is that they are backstage with UFO and they have no interest in hearing this local band, right? And then this local band goes on stage. And this bootleg exists, so I don't have to just talk about this. I can let you hear what happens in the first few minutes on stage at this show at the Golden West Ballroom. Recording quality is not great, but you can get a taste of how dynamic this show was if you check out the bootleg. Find the whole thing in the show notes. It's fun to get lost in. There's early versions of Ice Cream Man, and there's a five-minute version of Eruption that Eddie loses himself on stage playing. They do Somebody Get Me a Doctor. It's, it's a really good time. And this is what is being heard backstage by Jackie Fox and Lita Ford. It forces them out of the back. They have to see this for themselves, and they do eventually lead the lead singer of Kiss to these guys, partly because of this whole thing. But what is happening the rest of the show? Uh, it goes well, but it's not without its mishaps. One of the most interesting stories is that Alex puts smoke pots under his drums and end- ends up catching this cloth he has around this makeshift crate drum riser that he built, he catches it on fire. Uh, But it adds another layer of unforgettableness uh, to this show, and they really, really impress. So that's the opening set. Then UFO comes out. Michael Shanker plays after Eddie Van Halen, and it doesn't go well. This is from the Greg Renoff book. As the quintet set progressed, that's UFO, it was obvious that they were drunk, high, or hungover, or maybe all three, and they were not ready to follow Van Halen. Their set included all of their biggest songs, but they never got into sync, and before the show was halfway over, much of the crowd had lost interest. They even end up smashing a bunch of equipment. Shanker smashes a trademark flying V on stage that night, and then... 
Phil Mogg, the lead singer, has this confrontation backstage with David Lee Roth, where he tells him, your guitarist really effed up, man. He messed with the mind of Michael Shanker. So these like older dudes are defending this 18-year-old kid they have playing guitar for them that they stole from the Scorpions, right? He is, he is their main concern. It's, it's amazing. Amazing. Just picturing Phil Mogg yelling at David Lee Roth. Now, surprisingly, that's not the most interesting thing that happened. Not the most dramatic thing that happened that night at the Golden West Ballroom. There's another story here that has to be told. The truth is, the Van Halen boys probably couldn't tell you if they were better than UFO that night. Because they very quickly had to deal with something else that got them very, very distracted. So, here's what happens. The Van Halen set ends, and Eddie goes to the bathroom. Now remember, they're the opening band. There's not like backstage bathrooms. It's the Golden West Ballroom in Norwalk. He goes to the bathroom in the club. And when he's in that bathroom, a guy, he he's like a vaguely familiar guy. Walks up to him, he's like, man, that was awesome. And Eddie realizes this is a guy who he has bought drugs from. And the guy says, hey, how about a celebratory hit? Would you like to do some coke? So they step into a bathroom stall. And Eddie, always the polite gentleman, asks the guy, okay, how much can I take? And the guy says, no, hey, man, you just, you killed it up there. Do what you, do what you want. Do what your heart desires. So Eddie takes two hits. Two bumps in each nostril. I'm just letting that sink in. Now, it's not that strange for Eddie to party hard at this point, okay? But by the time he gets back to the stage, things are getting torn down. The set is getting struck. He starts quivering. His arms start flailing. Alex pulls him off stage with help, but he's too rigid for them to get into a car. He's non-responsive. Alex can't get him into the car, so he punches him in the stomach to get him to bend over. And when they get him bent over, they shove him in the car and speed off to the hospital. Now, I'll return to the text, the Renoff book, to finish the story. At the hospital, Edward was quickly wheeled into the ER. The attending physician immediately placed a tube down his throat and nurses checked his vital signs and started him on oxygen. By this time, his parents had gotten the awful news and had made their way to Norwalk. Later, the doctor would walk out of the ER and remark to everyone, if you got him here a few minutes later, you probably would have lost him. Now, this was the first time Edward's parents ever knew that he was abusing drugs. Edward, too, had to come to grips with what had happened to him. He explained to a radio host in the mid-90s in an interview... Quote, I OD'd on PCP thinking it was cocaine. That's when I first got exposed to that stuff, and I didn't know what it was. And that's the story of how Eddie Van Halen almost died of a PCP overdose after kicking Michael Shanker's ass in an unofficial shredding contest in May of 1976. That's not where you thought we were going to end up, is it? Oh, man. If you want to get involved with the show, we are the story guys at gmail.com. That's the best way, the quickest way to do it. Find us on Facebook. Interact with us there. It's the story guys. Find that page. And you can always hit our website. We are the story That is our internet home for all the things we're into. A thank you for being part of the show. And remember, until next time, don't 
do coke in the bathroom, unless you were sure it's coke, and uh, keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.